Good evening. The death toll keeps rising at the site of a building collapse in Florida. The mystery of an assassination in Haiti deepens, even as suspects are rounded up. New York settles with the Sacklers. Will they escape real accountability? And New York City workers say they're being shortchanged. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAIVD News for Friday, July 9th, 2021. The death toll in the collapse of a Miami-area condo building rose to 78 on Friday, a number the mayor called heartbreaking. Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava said the work to recover victims was moving forward with great urgency in order to bring closure to the families of victims. On Wednesday, workers shifted their mission from search and rescue to recovery after concluding that there was no chance of life in the rubble. Paraguay's foreign minister said in a radio report that the body of the sister of that country's first lady was among those found. Several Latin American citizens were reported to be in the building when it collapsed. In Washington, President Joe Biden announced yesterday the drawdown of the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan will be completed by August 31st. Biden also pledged to relocate thousands of Afghan interpreters who served alongside U.S. troops and fear for their safety. Last week, the United States transferred Bagram Air Base, its most important airfield in Afghanistan, to Afghan forces. It's considered a near final step in the pullout that sources say is already complete for all intents and purposes. Biden says his decision for a quick, quick withdrawal came on advice from his generals. When I announced our drawdown in April, I said we would be uh, out by September, and we're on track to meet that target. Our military mission in Afghanistan will conclude on August 31st. The drawdown is proceeding in a secure and orderly way, prioritizing the safety of our troops as they depart. Our military commanders advised me that once I made the decision to end the war, we needed to move swiftly to conduct the main elements of the drawdown. And in this context, speed is safety. Thanks to the way in which we have managed our withdrawal, no one, no one U.S. forces or any forces have, uh, have been lost. Conducting our drawdown differently would have certainly come with an increased risk of safety to our personnel. To me, those risks were unacceptable. President Biden. Meanwhile, the Taliban, America's bitter enemy in that landlocked Central Asian country since the 9-11 attacks, has been steadily gaining ground against U.S.-backed Afghan government forces. Although Biden's stress a takeover by the radical Islamist group is not a certainty. The United States Defense Department says the U.S. military is in active discussions with the State Department regarding what a spokesperson calls robust over-the-horizon capability to support the Kabul government. Over-the-horizon capability is a euphemism for air power and drone warfare, usually targeted assassinations against adversaries. Anti-drone activist Nick Modern says using drones is a war crime because the majority of victims are non-combatant civilians. These killings have been hugely, drone killings have been hugely damaging and terrorizing of large numbers of civilian populations, many of whom have not even gotten over this. If you can imagine the United States uh, having Afghanistan come and start using drones to assassinate people in our communities, we would not be doing anything other than trying to kill Afghan people. To say this saves American lives is a very narrow public relations advertising argument. The reality of what we're facing and what's happened gives the lie. All, all this drone warfare for the last 20 years in Afghanistan has put us 
no closer to peace and probably has prolonged the war and the killing because there's no kickback in America because there's less troops dying so we can go bomb people and assassinate them with drones. When politicians have that point of view, as the Congress seems to have, they absolutely have refused to examine the uh, drone war. Then you have a situation where military contractors say, well, let's keep going. Let's make more money. And politicians say, yeah, let's look like tough guys. And that's where we find ourselves right now. It's horrible for the world. We've seen that other countries learn fast. Go to an electronic store and buy a drone, put a bomb on it. Anybody can do that now. That's exactly right. And, and the United States has not only encouraged it with its behavior, it's out marketing various drones and encouraging other countries to buy them. Frankly, we have a situation developing now where in a place like Libya, you have Russia, China, Turkey testing drones, anti-drones, air defense systems. This is what may very well happen in Afghanistan. We have a petition that we started two weeks ago on Roots Action, no more U.S. air attacks in Afghanistan. We're urging people to sign that because it's a way of showing public absolute revulsion against this notion of bombing more Afghan people. By responding to Americans and other countries responding to their citizens saying we don't want our soldiers to die, they've in fact exported the war that only civilians are dying now. There's a whistleblower, uh, Daniel Hale, who's waiting a sentencing on July 27th for releasing government documents that showed the war crimes of the U.S. drone war program. He's maybe spending 10 years in federal prison because of truth-telling. One of the things he revealed was that the government made a study over a five-month period. They found that only one out of every 10 people killed by drones was actually the person targeted. There will be Taliban people killed if the United States bombs over the horizon. But many, many more civilians will be slaughtered in this, and there is no accounting. The racism of this thing is so deep and so profound. It's something that history is going to look back on with shame, similar to what the shame is around what's happened with slavery in this country. It, this is really just nonstop, over-the-horizon atrocity that is planned here. Activist Nick Modern is with the organization Ban Killer Drones. In related news, Dan Hale, a former Air Force intelligence analyst who pleaded guilty to sharing classified documents about drone strikes with a reporter, had been arrested just a few days ago ahead of his sentencing on July 27th. Hale pleaded guilty to one charge under the Espionage Act, and he faces up to 10 years in prison. As part of his plea agreement, Hale admitted to leaking 11 classified documents to a journalist. It's been reported the information was used by The Intercept in an eight-part series about drone strikes. You can learn more about the Hale case at bankillerdrones.org. And in news from Haiti, Two men believed to be Haitian-Americans, one of them purportedly a former bodyguard at the Canadian embassy in Port-au-Prince, have been arrested in connection with the assassination of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse. They are among 17 suspects detained in the brazen killing. The chief of Haiti's national police says 15 are from Colombia. Reportedly, President Ivan Duque has instructed the high command of Colombia's army and police to cooperate in the investigation. Witnesses said the two Haitian-American suspects were discovered yesterday hiding in bushes in Port-au-Prince by a crowd, some of whom grabbed the men by their shirts and pants, pushing them and occasionally slapping them.
Haiti has been plagued by gang violence in recent years, with some of the gangs claiming to be helping Haitians, who are for the most part desperately poor, others more like American organized crime families. Haiti specialist Brian Concanon says most of much of Haitian civil society had concluded the Moise's presidency was not legitimate. The gangs are a little bit of a complicated situation. There is, as in almost any place where you have a lack of government services and a government presence, armed groups can take up the space that's left by the government. And in Haiti, gangs can go kind of across a political spect or across a spectrum of activities, especially following the coup d'etat in 2004. There were a lot of gangs that were set up almost purely for self-defense as a way of neighborhoods defending themselves against other gangs and against the dictatorship. The other end of the spectrum, you have gangs that are only purposes is common crime. A lot of the gangs are somewhere in the middle where they provide some protection and other services to people in the community, but they are also involved in common crime. And, you know, it's not unlike kind of a mafia setup and other organized crime in the United States where criminal organizations are able to entrench themselves in areas where there aren't enough government services. A guy named Jimmy Cherizier played a positive role. It's unquestionably true. He's done some positive things, and many people, especially in his neighborhood, do look up to him as a positive force. From the information I've seen on balance, I think that Cherizier is more problematic than he is helpful in the sense that his gangs have unleashed a reign of terror on other neighborhoods. What happens next? A lot depends on what the United States allows to happen. The Constitution gives a roadmap for how to get out of this, but those roads were all blocked by Moise. What you're supposed to have is a joint session of parliament that convokes within 60 days to elect a new president. There is no parliament, so they can't do it. And in the meantime, the prime minister is supposed to run things, which appears to be what's happening. The problem is the prime minister is not official. He's interim. He was never ratified by parliament. What I'm hearing from my Haitian collaborators is that they want some kind of a transitional, negotiated, broad-based structure that can help move Haiti forward and lead towards fair elections. There are fears that the United States is going to pick its candidate and force that candidate into a position of leadership. Like people seem to want the U.S. to come in and help. And there's lots of people who are calling for U.S. military intervention right now. That's a pretty small minority opinion. Um, Haitians accept that there will be some kind of U.S. involvement just in the way that gravity is operating on me right now. They don't see any way that that's not going to happen. And Haitians were very hopeful when President Biden came into office. In general, they feel that their hopes have been betrayed. Haiti specialist Brian Concanon. In videos that purported to be of the attackers outside of Moise's residence in the wealthy neighborhood known as Petionville, the heavily armed men can be heard announcing in English, DEA operation, everybody stand down, DEA operation. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency has had counter-narcotics officers in Haiti for decades, but the DEA has denied its agents had anything to do with the assassination. Journalist Amy Willens is author of numerous books on Haiti, including The Rainy Season, Haiti Since Duvalier. She says there's no way to know who killed Moises, but she adds somebody does know. Two guys in the back of a pickup truck You're being taken away done. by the cops from the click crowd. The there's a lot of excitement around finding anyone like that. And there's no way to know if they're 
guilty or not guilty or how they were found. I think they were just kind of rounded up by the people in the neighborhood who found some guys who didn't belong there and, and jumped to the conclusion that they must be the assassins. We don't know yet. We really don't know. I heard the former prime minister, Laurent Lamotte, I think it was on ABC television, saying that 28 Venezuelan citizens are holed up somewhere in Port-au-Prince and they're the ones who did it. I wonder how they know if they're holed up, how they are 28 Venezuelan citizens. Did they headcount them or something? There's a lot of information going around, even among the mature people who should know better. And I think we just have to wait and see. I find it very strange, by the way, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, Paul, but in an assassination like this one, where they come in in the dark of night, they're in SUVs, they're heavily armed, they're simply foreign nationals, they jump in, they murder the president, they injure his wife, they jump out, and they're gone into the night. I find it hard that they wouldn't have negotiated their exit plan before they agreed to commit this. It does look like mercenaries, and mercenaries always know how to get out before they go in. Do you think that this is the type of thing when a you know when you have an unstable government, a country with a history of unstable governments and coups and what have you, that... Uh, Everybody's going to be just playing this for their own purposes, and every story you hear just benefits whoever's telling that story. There's a lot of that. The uh, rounding up of suspects is a diversion tactic. You know, and Let's not think about what's really going on in the country. Let's get into the chase. We may be chasing people who have nothing to do with it, and hopefully we won't kill too many in the process uh, if they're innocent. But let's divert the cameras and the eye of the public onto this chase rather than talking about what are we going to do about governance, what are we going to do about democracy, how are we going to get the country back on its feet. It's one of those weird situations where you have a terrible event, and I believe an assassination is a terrible thing. And this was a particularly cruel one, but it does open up space to think about what's next. One is saying it's the outside forces that are coming in, and the other is saying this is totally internal. Well, it can be both. It can be masterminded internally, with outsiders coming in to do it. That's what I would I would guess that there's that element of inside job, outside executioners. It doesn't um, seem like the type of thing that would happen if this was generated by a popular, even revolutionary organization. It, there's something where they want to take credit for it. In this case, oh, they're not trying to take credit. It's not the people. It's not the popular organizations. Definitely not. They don't have the wherewithal to do this. When I say an inside job, I mean among the late president's coterie of friends, advisors, rivals, future presidential candidates, um, that kind of thing, and all their connections. So there are a lot of people near Moise who were near Moise who have varying interests uh, in Haiti's future, and they someone may have seen him as an obstacle to that or as intransigently unmoved. Do you by... think this has anything to do with uh, his refusal to leave and that the demonstrations that have been happening or is this totally out of left field? This is something that's going on, corruption within the government or what have you? I doubt highly that the popular opposition is that organized and that well-funded that they could stage something like this. So I go more to the wealthier business mafia inside of Moise's band of brothers 
who might have wanted him to leave sooner, or he might have threatened to expose someone. He might have threatened someone's turf over money. There's a lot of corruption in his government and around him. I would say we can't know. I would say we might never know. But I would also add, someone knows. Journalist Amy Willens is author of numerous books on Haiti, including The Rainy Season, Haiti Since Duvalier. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York State could receive up to $200 million if a settlement is approved that would require the Sackler family to pay $4.5 billion and permanently shutter OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma. The deal was announced Thursday. About $4 billion would come from the Sackler's own cash. New York Attorney General Letitia James, Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey, and Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, all Democrats, were there to describe the settlement. Healey is the first one we hear. In short, this is what we've accomplished. The Sacklers are paying $4.3 billion. We believe that's more than any law enforcement action has collected from individuals ever. And all of that money will go for treatment and care. The Sacklers will be permanently banned from the opioid business. Purdue Pharma will cease to exist. Every Sackler director and all of their CEOs have been required to answer our questions under oath. And the Sackler name, won't be on any more buildings or hospital wings or museums. And most importantly, the public will witness the most significant disclosure in any case ever, including every piece of evidence Purdue has produced about its opioid business in the last 20 years. Tens of millions of documents that have never been seen before, never have been turned over, including attorney-client privilege documents. All of this will be made publicly available. And as Maura Healy, Attorney General James addressed doubts about the settlement, which spares the Sacklers from criminal prosecution. And at this point, some may be asking, why are we accepting this mediator's proposal? Well, let me be clear. There is no perfect solution here. And as we have dealt with delay after delay, from Purdue and the Sackler family, more and more Americans have become addicted to opioids. And, uh, and as this one company and the family that controls it have taken advantage of loopholes in our legal system, they have continued to make millions of dollars off of death and destruction na- nationwide. No, this deal, I don't think any of us will say that this deal is perfect, but we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. We can't let perfect be the enemy of getting results. Um, and this deal gets one of the nation's most harmful drug dealers out of the opioid business. And if approved, we'll put an end to delays and legal maneuvering um, that could possibly continue for years across multiple, multiple continents. New York Attorney General Letitia James. New York was one of 15 states that agreed to drop their opposition to Purdue's bankruptcy plan. California, Connecticut, and Delaware have not signed on to the agreement with the Sacklers. Attorney General Maura Healy says bankruptcy laws need to be changed. Purdue filed for bankruptcy, and then the Sackler family ran to court, even though they're billionaires, to try to use the loophole that exists in the bankruptcy process that allows them to get relief. The court has scheduled a hearing on August 9th. At that hearing, the judge will hear on the proposed plan. It is a confirmation hearing. We anticipate that the judge would then soon thereafter be entering an order entering that plan. 
our job as AGs was to look at what our families needed and deserved. We listened to our families and we made the decision to deliver on our promise to our families for disclosure. They wanted full disclosure, transparency, a light shown, the secrets to be told, everything come out. And that was what we were able to, that's what we were able to achieve through the process. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy. The agreement is part of a civil case and no criminal penalties for the Sacklers were discussed, is what they're saying anyway. And in New York City news, retired teachers, sanitation workers, hospital workers, office workers, and firefighters who spent their careers working for New York City marched today through the financial district. They protested the city's plans to move 250,000 retirees from traditional government-run Medicare to a privately-run Medicare Advantage plan. Clark Adamitis has the story. NYCHA says they are working to increase recycling and reduce the rat population. They're starting in East Harlem on First Avenue at the Wagner Houses. Bridget Vicente is a NYCHA resident and founder of Inner City Green Team, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping NYCHA residents become more environmentally friendly. It includes a door-to-door recycling collection initiative where we teach residents how to recycle through educational workshops. The most attractive thing about it is that it's convenient. When we teach you how to recycle, we give you the supplies in the form of sort and store bags. Um, and you, we do a weekly collection to where the residents put their recyclables in their bags and we pick them up once a week. So there's no there's no long trips to, you know, far away containers. NYCHA was founded back in 1934. Since then, the amount of waste generated by Americans has tripled. At the same time, NYCHA hasn't been able to keep up with infrastructure improvements and repairs, and a lack of funding has made compliance more difficult. Now, new recycling programs are coming to NYCHA housing. This is possible, according to Vlada Kenef, because of an additional $563 million from the city. Kenef is the NYCHA Vice President of Energy and Sustainability. She says that many NYCHA buildings have not received the capital investments they need. Decades of federal disinvestment has left their developments confronting a total of $40 billion in major repair needs. I am proud to say we finally got approval on our Capital City Action Plan, which will unlock over $563 million in funding to help the authority fully upgrade and modernize its waste infrastructure. This is on top of the $47 million through the Neighborhood Rat Reduction Program we've already been using to enlarge trash chutes at 50 developments. New York City is infested with about 2 million rats, and NYCHA promised to decrease its rat population by 50% in 2022. But NYCHA hasn't had such a good record on waste management compliance. It failed on its promise to dispose of trash every 24 hours in 2020. Jose Okendo is director of NYCHA's Waste Management and Pest Control. If waste is controlled better and we have great resident participation and everything goes where they go, then the eviction notices for the rats also they will leave. And that is our primary function, right, is to make sure that you're living in an area where it's rodent free. And once upon a time ago, I used to live here at Wagner Houses. I was actually born here. So it's really nice to see 
how the neighborhood has changed, but also of the fact that there's so many of you here that is willing to work together to kind of make a change here in our neighborhood. Optimism at NYCHA is a good sign, but the troubled housing complex has seen its share of problems. Meanwhile, additional funds for renovating waste yards and funding new recycling initiatives will go a long way towards compliance. By 2028, the plan is to totally renovate waste yards at 194 housing developments with new yards, efficient compactors, and improved cleanliness. The inner city green team is excited to bring their service and educational approach of collecting recycling to Wagner houses and more housing developments in the future. You can contact them by going to innercitygreenteam.org. Clark Adamitis, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Clark. And that's some of the news for Friday, July 9th, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.